success doesn't always feel like success. And when it looks like you've made it to the rest of the world, you can be left feeling like there's still so much to do, but without a clear direction or plan. On the Success That Last podcast, we're going behind the scenes with business owners, real estate investors, and industry consultants to deconstruct the complicated topic of success. We'll be exploring questions, strategies, and experiences that help create clarity and confidence surrounding your financial decisions. Here's your host, Jared Siegel. Welcome back to Success That Lasts. If you had spent 40 years helping business owners, real estate investors, and affluent families make financial decisions, how would it influence the way you think about money? If you had watched others create wealth, grow wealth, and transfer wealth, some of them doing it well, some of them leaving something to be desired. How would that inform your convictions? That's why I'm excited for today's conversation with Dave DeLapp. Dave spent the last four decades serving clients and helping them navigate the competing priorities often surrounded with these complicated decisions. Dave started off as my boss, but quickly became a mentor, business partner, and dear friend. I've been looking forward to today's conversation. I want to know what drives him and some of the ways that his thinking has evolved over the years. I want to know why he's chosen to accelerate into the final years of his career while so many of us choose to coast. So with that, let's jump into today's conversation with Dave. All right, Dave. We're live. We're doing this. This right. is going to be great. Yeah. We're terrible. <laughs> I vote great. So I'm pumped because uh, of all the podcasts we've gotten to do, I haven't gotten to do one with one of my friends that I'm working with so intimately. You know, our state and local practice, not a lot of interactions day to day. So it feels like I get to know you professionally in a way that's a special, fun relationship. I think of you as a business partner. I think of you as a friend, mentor. So you play a lot of different important roles in my life. So I'm excited to put you on the hot seat. <laughs> I'm excited as well, Jared. Thank you. All right. So our relationship started uh, 12 years ago. I was uh, an aspiring entrepreneur. I had just had my first kid and I fired out. I thought it was a great time to start a financial services business back in 2008. <laughs> Actually, more precisely, end of 2007. But at that moment in time, you know, we met, you handed me your business card and I couldn't help but notice that the company's name matched your last name and your title was managing partner. So in that moment in time, I'm you know, young new dad starting out this new company that wasn't yet going, I looked up to you. I saw somebody that was successful, but presumably you didn't start there. So, you know, four decades or so into this career, tell me kind of the journey that led you to this moment in time. Yeah, it's the years have flown by. It's hard to even imagine that in the twilight of my career. But when I think back over the years, there have been kind of key decisions along the way and key individuals that invested in me that brought me to where I am here today. So just for a little bit of context, uh, my grandfather, Virgil, started the firm in 1933. And then my father joined the firm as a partner many years later. And so I grew up knowing of at the time was probably Delap, Paul and Raish, Delap, White, Paul and Raish, something like that. I don't know, various iterations of the name. So I knew accounting and I knew the, what the profession was like. Wasn't sure that I wanted to go into that profession. My senior year in college at Linfield, my accounting professor, Mike Jones, was very instrumental in leading me in the direction of, of accounting. I thought I was just going to go into finance or some aspect of business, but he encouraged me to interview with the accounting firms in the fall and I got job offers and nobody else was offering me a job. So I joined a national firm way back when, spent four years at the national firm. And then my wife and I decided to do a little something different and joined the Peace Corps. Ended up spending uh, two years in Belize. And uh, that was a time that was very impactful on me. I grew a lot in that time. We grew together during that time, seeing an international culture, working with different people, doing something totally different than accounting. Yeah. Um, so tell me then, jumping into there, like, how are you different? What's evidence of, of that experience in your life today? 
become a much more social person. So you're, you're now you're wondering, whoa, well, he was a real stereotype accountant. Before. So, so this is the extroverted <laughs> version of Dave DeLapp? Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so I learned a lot about people from different cultures. I learned a lot about myself. You had to step out of your comfort zone. I learned about what I wanted to be doing for a profession. When I left public accounting after four years and, and joined the Peace Corps, I thought I would return to private accounting, maybe be a CFO, something like that. And it was uh, my experience there working with small business lending organization, coaching basketball, teaching at the junior college. I just really enjoyed the flexibility, the variation, the variability in the day-to-day -day work. The actual work with the lending institution was kind of the same every day. And I figured out, ah, I'm not cut out to just do that type of work. And so about the time I was coming up with those decisions in my mind, Jim White, my dad's partner, twisted my dad's arm to, to call me and connect and see if I'd come join the firm. And so when I left Peace Corps, I came back and joined the lap at that time and uh, have been here ever since. So how many people are at the firm at that time? If my memory serves me right, I think we were 12 people back then. And I could probably name most of the people. I think three were partners at the time. It was the lap white and race at that point in time. And, uh, so we're up to about 120 right now. A yeah. little, bit, little bit's changed over that period of time. Yeah, yeah, a lot of growth. And uh, I've told people before, I enjoyed the firm then, and I enjoyed each iteration as we've grown along the way. So real quickly then, when we met your managing partner, tell me what you enjoyed about that experience, and then I guess what maybe some of the hidden burden in leadership was that sitting in that chair. Yeah, so Jim White was a longtime managing partner of the firm and at a point in time that he decided to step away from that. And I think there was four partners at that time kind of looked around the table and I probably drew the short straw at that point in time. But I was, of all the partners, probably the most passionate about leading and about causing change within the organization and less focused on just the pure production of assurance or compliance in the tax department. So you go from charging hours to leading an organization. Did you enjoy that experience? Were you good at it? I enjoyed most aspects of that. I'm definitely not as good as Alex Corrigan, our present CEO. I mean, he's definitely more wired in that way. When I became managing partner, I don't know, maybe we were 25 people. And when Alex took over, maybe we were 80 people. So it was a completely different firm over yeah. that period of time. And I had grown up being somewhat of a natural leader, team captain of track in both high school and in college. And then when we were in Peace Corps, I was kind of the de facto leader of our team. And so I think when I went into the role of managing partner, I thought I just have leadership skills. Well, those skills aren't, and some people, maybe it's very innate and born into them. Others, they need to learn those skills. And so I worked hard to learn more leadership skills, learn from the people around me. Jim White taught me a lot about how to lead and really a servant leadership approach to leadership. All right. So I've got two follow-up questions. Hopefully I remember <laughs> it. Don't get derailed. Well, first question would be, when I ask you who's the most influential leader that you've been around, who's the first person you think of? In my life, it's probably Jim White. He was the managing partner. And so as I grew in my career and became a partner, I observed him and Jim really invested in me. I mean, Jim was always very forward looking, you know, five, 10 years down the line of who's going to be replacing leadership. And so yeah. he, he so when you say he me. invested in you, what does that actually look like? I mean, he gave me opportunities to lead. He involved me in decisions, Yeah, um, you know, brought me alongside of him. He he would teach by example, and he'd also teach by, you know, just telling you, you know, this is ways to, to do certain things. You know, when I think around the firm, who our current operational leaders are, you know, I think of our current COO, Ryan Boatsman. I hear that before I got here at the firm 10 plus years ago, when the firm went paperless, you had a guy in the infancy of his career thrust into this major project project that probably somebody a couple of years into their career probably shouldn't be tackling, <laughs> but clearly those experiences grow people up really quickly. You know, one of our newer partners, Joe Seifert, raves about being a tax staff, pulled into meetings that he had no business being in and, and seeing Jim as he was transitioning clients as he was retiring, that experience accelerated uh, Joe's capacity to, to be a financial leader. And Jim always emphasized that, right? The, the need to be a financial leader in one's life. 
Yeah, as I think through that question, if I were to pose it to myself, who's the most influential leader that I've been around? Uh, the first person I think of is Jim Ratcliffe. He was mm-hmm. the strength and conditioning coach at, at Oregon, uh, an innovator in so many different ways as it pertains to uh, training athletes. Uh, you know, he was consulting with the LA Lakers when I was down playing football at the University of Oregon. An incredible man. And from a leadership perspective, what I admired most about him is he led from the front. When he asked us to do something, he did it with us. Uh, When we ran sprints in the summertime, he ran sprints with us. At 6 a.m. in in January, a couple of weeks after a bowl game, when we're already back out there, it's 6 a.m. in the dark in Eugene, cold and wet. At times, a couple of times snowed. We're running sprints, and and Jim, he's running sprints with us. Coach Radcliffe called him Rad. I mean, that guy had high expectations. uh, And there's an incredible diversity of, of people that show up on the team and, and some of us had had exposure to real organizational discipline and some of us didn't. Mm-hmm. And so he needed to step in and, and assert some level of discipline that often was not present in one's life prior to that moment. Um, but he, he, he received boys and he left with men. And I mean, he was the heartbeat of the program for so many reasons down there. But he also had three simple rules that seemed to kind of impact me as a leader today. He simplified everything to no excuses, no messengers, and no sympathy parties. Oh, great rules. It's interesting. They seem to capture a lot of different things. No excuses, no sympathy parties, no messengers. There's a lot of ways that that could apply in life. It seems to work a little bit better on a football team, but um, may or may not be HR compliant. Yes, no, and I think back to Jim White, not only was he good at instructing, and, and he did what you described there, he would bring me into client meetings, so I learned a lot of the techniques of serving clients well just by observing how Jim did that, but I always knew that Jim really cared for me, and yeah. and as I've heard you talk a little bit about Rad over the years, um, would that, uh, would that uh, align with him as well, that he really cared about you and showed it on and off the field? Yeah, for sure. He did. I mean, a lot of our other coaches, it was their occupation and their job security was predicated upon the performance of, of 18 year olds. Yeah. Um, so that experience, it felt like my first boss, but we were around the strength and conditioning coach infinitely more, you know, uh, 12 months a year. And so he certainly cared uh, about us in a way like growing us up as a man, because it, most of us didn't go pro. Right. And so yeah. most of us we left. And, and so those skill sets uh, impacted us. Candidly, it's actually the first time that I learned the difference between a result and a goal. You know, we go through these uh, quarterly goal planning exercises and I would say, you know, I want to be able to do X and it was a result. And he's like, no, that's a result. The, the goal would be the measurable specific activities that would precede that outcome. And again, I, I hadn't encountered that mm-hmm. concept as a, as an 18 year old. And so all of a sudden, the goals became things that were measurable, pass-fail inputs, kind of the leading indicators of, of successful outcomes. Right. And so that certainly has informed the way that I interact with my own practice, my clients, my family. Uh, and I owe, I, I owe that to, to Radcliffe because he was the first guy that, that brought that concept to me. Um, all right, so I'm going to circle back then. You talked about leading the firm and having to develop new skills as a leader. Uh, if I were to put you on the spot and say, what is your, your greatest strength as a leader? Give me your take and I'll, uh, I'll tell you whether you're right or wrong. <laughs> when I was managing partner, I think my greatest strength was um, being the peacemaker. A partnership uh, in an accounting firm is different than a corporate structure where you have, you know, one boss and then vice presidents, you know, you, you have multiple owners. And so everybody has an opinion and has an idea and thinks their idea is is best. And so um, for many years through our growth, I think I was the peacemaker partner, partly because I grew up working in both uh, assurance and uh, tax departments, because when you're smaller, you had to do everything. So I had, and I kept my feet in both of those arenas for a really long time. So uh, I could understand and work well with both the assurance partners as well as the tax partners. But um, that, and I think I have people trust me and, and trust is a key to leadership. Um, so those are two of the keys. Or yeah. I like a trust answer better. Yeah. That's, that's for sure. People internally and externally trust you. I think through the, the relationships that you have, uh, trust is the common pillar. Um, which which is earned over a long period of time. They trust your character. They trust your competency. So, so that's true. 
I've actually come to appreciate one of the attributes in you that I, I love is you're a first follower. You know, uh, there's the, the viral YouTube clip of the kooky guy out on a concert starts dancing. And then it's not until the first person follows uh, where all of a sudden it becomes a movement. You know, you, you're not a leader until you have a follower. And, uh, and it takes humility, I think, to, to be a first follower. Mm. And, um, and so just in this experience, this opportunity to launch our wealth advisory practice together, uh, kind of for a fascinating moment in time, you're in the process of, of growing your family from, from four to, to eight. Uh, in the midst of this uh, adoption, you know, we come to you and say, you're going to have to get licensed. And, and you did. And, you know, the last four or five years has been uh, just exceptional, just having this opportunity to lead with you. But it's your capacity to courageously be a first follower, to walk into that ambiguity that I think uh, I've come to really appreciate because being a leader, I think sometimes means stepping out, but at, at other times it, it means following. And I, I've just come to appreciate that it leaders require first followers. And so in, in my own life, I'm trying to find opportunities of, of who's the person to follow because there, you can't have a hundred leaders, yeah. you know, and you can't be the leader a hundred percent of the time. At least I don't think. All right. Right. So I hinted at your family life. It's unconventional might be one way to, uh, <laughs> to structure it. So, so tell me a little bit about who Dave is outside of the office. So I've been married to Carla for 38 years. Okay. January 4th was the anniversary of our uh, first date uh, 38 years ago. How's that? So that, that's pretty That's nice. impressive. Most yeah. people can't pull that date. Okay. <laughs> Where'd you go on your first date? First date was down to Cannon Beach. Did she like you after the first date or did you have to work for the second date? Oh, uh, no, she liked me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We knew, had known each other for, I don't know, 10 years or so uh, through youth group. So, all right. Um, yeah. yeah. So, married to Carla yep. successfully. Yep. Yep. And uh, we have two children that are biological children, Amy and Peter. And, uh, they grew up, uh, they were really very easy children. Didn't, didn't, didn't have to be a great parent when you have really easy children, you know, and, and Carla's an uh, amazing mother and, and she, she led them well and, uh, they launched well. And, um, uh, we were empty nesters for a few years there. And, uh, and then, uh, God put it on our hearts to, uh, adopt some children. So we, uh, back in 2016 brought, uh, four children into our home and uh, um, are uh, having a blast uh, the second time around. So tell me as I have a couple of follow-up questions, just cause that's, it's interesting and unconventional provokes curiosity. <laughs> um, how are you different as a father this time around than you were the first time around? Uh, I'm, I'm definitely different in that uh, the first time around, you know, life was just Your kind forehead of was smaller. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> a better sure. hairline. <laughs> Not many gray hairs. Um, um, as I mentioned, Amy and Peter were really easy kids. And, uh, um, you know, I was working a lot and we, you know, you work hard, play hard. And we did a lot of family activities and, and uh, very involved at our church and, uh, um, you know, kind of very typical American family. Um, and then uh, now with our, our four newer ones, uh, it's just different. And, and it, takes, it takes much more concentration on, um, and I kind of regret not as being uh, as focused with my, the, the other two. And, and uh, so I'm definitely focused on these. And, it, you know, when I get home, you know, you have to be on and, and you know, you're, you're dealing with behavioral issues and emotional issues. And, and, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's great. It's just different and, and takes more concentration and uh, intentionality. Yeah. That's the right word. Really. Very rarely is intentionality a bad thing that provokes those questions. It's intriguing to me. I, I'm always thinking about, um, my brain often thinks in pictures. Uh, I, I read that a dragonfly has 10,000 lenses within its eyes, obviously then it's all stitched together within its head, which is crazy. Wouldn't think a dragonfly yeah. would, would have that capacity. But the point, is, the point is it creates a different perspective. And I think it's interesting as a young father, myself and many of our clients kind of walking into parenthood or, or that might be on the, the horizon, uh, just the, the change of perspective as you climb higher on the mountain, you just have a greater perspective of the landscape. And so uh, often financial independence and retirement is this thing that looks amazing from afar. You know, the beaches, the, the hammocks, the golf course, the second homes. 
and you, you had an opportunity. You took a, a, a peek. You and Carla walked in and, and, and took a peek and then, and then turned away and, and fired it up again. So I guess tell me a little bit of what that, what that experience was like, you know, fourth quarter of your career, you're a senior partner, you know, empty nester. The, most people start coasting and that hasn't been your experience. So just talk to me about that. Yeah, so the, the change, you know, happened both personally uh, and professionally. Um, it was at a time when uh, we changed the organizational structure of the firm and went in the CEO route and, and Alex became our CEO. And so I was, you know, heading back to being a tax partner. And um, I had always, you know, you know, had maybe a third of my time in chargeable hours, but now I was, you know, going to be ramping that back up. And never being, uh, or more recently, not being a preparer or reviewer of tax returns, more just the um, client relationship person and the um, and the consulting side of things. You know, I, I was a little bit apprehensive of what that was going to look like, but uh, I think God had other ideas for me there with the kids and was really just preparing me to to have the kids uh, join us. And so. Um, while they joined our family and, and, you know, I'm learning all new ways uh, of parenting now with Carla. Um, now we're in our second time around in our latter years. Um, I'm also having the same experience at work where I'm having the opportunity to kind of reinvent myself and, you know, really actually looking back and, and regretting that I wasn't more of a lifelong learner during the years when I was, you know, producing a lot and, and, um, being managing partner and as managing partner, I would read a fair amount and, and, uh, but not like I am today. I'm, I'm you know, because of audible, <laughs> I'm getting, you know, a, you know, a book a week almost maybe, or, um, yeah, it's, a, so, it's a way to redeem your commute, right. Or your workout. Yeah, yeah for sure. And so what's been interesting is, you know, like you say, as a person could be winding down in their career, I'm having more fun today than I was, you know, 10 years ago or 15 or 20 years ago. Um, I've always been more on the creative side and that lends itself to the, to, to planning. And I was always okay at tax planning and, and succession planning. And now I get to add uh, wealth advisory to that as well. And so I'm excited to work alongside you in this and what, what initially was a, uh, a mandated uh, yeah. licensure became uh, an area that I'm spending more and more time every day in, and 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 I think um, positioned well to serve the client well. I mean, you and I have talked about the integration of tax with wealth management and how it's really missing in most um, of our clients. And so, as as our clients, you know, choose to integrate that both wealth management and tax and and estate and succession planning, we've found that we've been able to serve the client very well in, in those areas. Yeah, I this visual once came to me uh, around um, a, a conductor, and I realized then as we really thought about the difference between music and noise, that's that's kind of a brain bender. Mm -hmm. But the difference between noise and music is coordination, and so that opportunity to create the coordination within the client's financial life, I think, is a really compelling opportunity. And obviously, then uh, it's a unique opportunity uh, relationally yeah. to step into a pretty important role within the client's life um, to align values and, and wealth. My father used to give me uh, tapes, like the actual types of tapes that you, if like they got caught in the tape player, you'd have to get a pencil <laughs> and, and wind it back up to get the tape back inside the tape cassette. Yeah. So you give me these cassettes and they were these motivational speakers and talkers. And one of the guys, clearly in a, an impressionable moment in time, I'm driving around in Tualatin listening to some guy and his name was Charlie Tremendous Jones. <laughs> I presume that's got to be a nickname. Yeah. Either that or pretty uh, uh, high expectations as parents. Yeah, really. Charlie Tremendous Jones. And so the quote goes something like this. You will be the same person in five years as you are today, except for the people you meet and the books you read. So agree or disagree? Oh, I agree wholeheartedly. And I can think of periods in my life where I didn't really change much in a, maybe a 10 year period, something like that. Um, I mean, tax law changed and you had to learn those things, but actually changing the way you relate to people, uh, changing uh, your knowledge, um, that happens by 
you know, people investing in you. That's the people part, uh, maybe international travel or uh, being a volunteer somewhere. For me, mostly it's on the reading side of things. And so over the last five years, there's been a fair amount of change in your life, obviously, with the family and, and where you're spending your time. Um, any books or people come to mind that that would make that quote from Charlie Tremendous Jones true in your life? Yeah. Um, and I know you didn't pay me to say this, but you've had a tremendous impact on me over the last five years. I know we've been... Uh, I guess iron sharpens iron, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, just feelings your, mutual. your ability to challenge me and to encourage me in certain areas to um, uh, to, to tell me what I should be reading. Cause, yeah. cause I just, uh, you, you get to sample it first and, and then if it's good, I've been all, then I'll invest yeah. in it. And, uh, well, like um, this podcast, I appreciate you jumping in. You yeah. know, I just pulled you into this kicking and screaming, but I, yeah. I thought it would be, <laughs> it'd be fun and you do it. So appreciate that. Yeah. Happy to do this. Yeah. And so, you know, books, there's just been uh, a number of, uh, tremendous books that, uh, uh you've, mentioned that, that, that I've read and, and, you know, changed the way you think, uh, changed the way that you react to people. Um, so yeah, yeah. It's, there's a wealth of knowledge out there and it's, it's the most inexpensive way to, to learn. <laughs> I've heard, yeah, that a book is a life hack, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, everyone wants this most, the, the most efficient payoff. So how do we get a, a hack, do it faster and cheaper? And, and for, a well-written book. I mean, you could be synthesizing 10, 20, 30 years worth of life experiences into two or 300 pages and that payoff. I mean, to, to synthesize 20 or 30 years of, of insight and experiences into something that might take you a handful of hours to, to get through, that's a pretty leveraged experience. And so it's certainly why I've prioritized, uh, reading. It kind of started in a place of selfishness, actually. Uh, I was, when I first joined our organization, I mean, I was really focused on how do we help the firm grow. And as a, a, at the time, just an accounting firm, um, what differentiates one professional services firm from another? (laughs) It's really, it's probably very similar to sports. It's your people, your culture and your execution. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't as though we had proprietary audit or proprietary (laughs) tax strategy that we had patented. It was really a lot of these intangibles of people, uh, execution and culture. And so obviously you work really hard to win in recruiting, but I, I came to realize that we could also add value outside of the compliance. It's, there's an opportunity to add value through, uh, people, um, like, you know, influence. Like, so you've got, um, the opportunity to use your knowledge, um, your network, the people that, you know, uh, and your influence with those, those people to create, positive outcomes for clients. And I, and so part of the reading was selfish, right? So if I could expand my knowledge, uh, there was an opportunity to create more value and, and thus hopefully differentiate the relationship. And then all of a sudden I got hooked. I, I, mm-hmm. I just learning new ideas, uh, and disrupting my own thinking and my own worldview has, has been super energizing. You, know, you talk about it, it's, it's people and, and experiences and the books. Are, are there people for you over the last 12 years where just uh, you've really drawn from in terms of um, experience, in terms of how you uh, approach each and every day and, and that have been impactful in your life? It's a long list. It's really a long list. I mean, there's all kinds of people that I've met that are just friends people in the community, our clients. Mm-hmm. I attempt to be as authentic and transparent as possible and people often seem to reciprocate. And I've tried to, to create intentionality with the relationships that I have. And it feels as though you can't outgive. Really fascinated by this idea that you can use generosity as a business strategy. I've read a lot about it. And yeah. so, you know, Adam Grant has written about givers and takers and this concept that, I mean, most people are matchers, right? They give to get, but there's then the altruistic people that are just giving and they often start slower, but the compound growth of that generosity is huge. And so there's all kinds of people that come to mind. I have attempted to structure my life where there's people that are pouring into me that I'm looking up, mentors. Then I've attempted to create intentionality around the people that I'm pacing life with. Mm -hmm. These are my peers in walking out some of the challenges that we have and then honestly, I'm 
I'm the byproduct of so many other people's investments and generosity that uh, I want to make sure that I have that opportunity to, to replicate the influence that people have had in my life and the lives of others. And so to give back. Yeah, yeah. like we, within our own firm, within the athletic department, within clients, within uh, universities, you know, the idea that you could share some insights and perspective with people uh, so they don't have to pay some of the the real world tuition that we yeah. all pay in the forms of mistakes. Um, and, and truthfully, I think it's also, it's part of how the title of this, the podcast success that last came from this concept that success is so textured that, that it's joy and achievement. Right. And, and so most of these conversations in business and finance are about achievement, right? You can kind of measure that mm -hmm, in an mm -hmm. Excel document, but there's the other components of significance and legacy. And so, uh, it's in the pursuit of significance. I just want to be relevant to, to people. And so, um, yeah, uh, reaching up, out and down seems to be a, a, a way to create really rewarding uh, community around you professionally, mm -hmm. professionally and personally. Yeah. All right. So um, I guess uh, open-ended question, what is your best and worst business or financial decision? My best business decision was to come join the firm because you know, many people go to work each day and, and don't even enjoy the work that they do. It uh, For me, work became play when you enjoy it, you know, and so I've had the opportunity to provide well for my family and to do something that I actually enjoy most days uh, of the month. And, uh, and I'm not sure had I stayed with a national firm that that would have been the case. And so there's a lot of things that are firm values that line up really well with me, partly because I got to help craft them <laughs> over yeah. the years. Um, uh, but, uh, but that's, it's made, uh, work enjoyable. So that was my best, uh, business decision. Yeah. Probably my worst, uh, goes back to 2000, probably 2008. Uh, we had, uh, we merged in a firm, I'm not really seeing what was going to happen with the financial crisis. And did anyone? No. Yeah. You know, in hindsight, you just start kicking yourself that, you know, it was a bad, you, you weren't seeing that, but really nobody saw it. But at the same time, um, in an accounting firm, you hire in October for the next year, you know, yeah. a year from then. And so we were hiring people, you know, maybe, maybe six people were going to come on a year from then. And we were overstaffed by 10 people. And so, you know, I had to, was managing partner at the time when we had to walk through layoffs and, um, that was, that was really difficult. And so then you start kicking yourself. Why didn't I, why didn't I see that? Cause learning like in the classroom, when, as a student learning looks different than the way that we learn in, in the real world. So yeah. I've, I've always tried to reposition failure as, is education, right? So you had this decision, this moment professionally that, that you identify as your, your worst business decision. What'd you learn from it? I learned uh, to look further on out, uh, to really look to play the long game. I mean, they teach you in driver's head, you know, not to look 10 feet in front of the car, but to look, you know, I don't know how many feet, you know, 500 feet in front of the car. Good, good thing you don't have yeah. to reapply for your license. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of reasons that's good. But, um, but uh, you know, the, just the idea of, of going back up to 30,000 uh, feet and looking out into the future and, and planning for the long term of the firm. And, and it's so easy to get caught up in the day to day. And I really think that's what was happening to us in 2007, eight and nine. And there's where we we're, we're just reacting and we'd come through a period where the firm was growing very significantly. You know, the, those early two thousands were a good economy and, and, and definitely an accounting profession that was growing and our firm was growing significantly. And you just, kind of assumed we're great marketers because we know how to answer the phone. <laughs> yeah. Rising you know? tide. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, since then, I think I've been a lot better at, uh, you know, really planning for the long term and, and talking to my clients about that as well. Interesting. So, uh, planning for the, the long term. actually, I'm going to, I'm going to pause. I'm going to answer that question, uh, personally as well. Uh, I was running through lists of potential questions to, to ask you and my kids all had strong opinions of what, <laughs> so, uh, I'm not going to ask any of the questions that my seven-year-old wanted me to ask you, uh, like what's your favorite color and, uh, your favorite animal. Uh, but, uh, 
my daughter turned around and said, well, what if, what's your best and worst decision? And I thought about it and I, I much prefer asking the questions than getting asked the questions. <laughs> uh, it's interesting that the, the first thing that came to mind was actually uh, the same thing. It was the same thing. So uh, it was in the moment that I met you uh, 12 years ago. You know, it's 2000, end of 2007, I had just become a father. My wife had decided to stay at home with with our daughter. And, and I had a job where I was one of the top reps in the country for a commercial insurance company uh, opening the state of Oregon for them. And we were experiencing incredible growth. There was mm. so much opportunity here. Uh, but I had pursued the job for money. And uh, yeah pretty confident though. I had been told countless times money won't make you happy. I was pretty sure I might be the exception. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden you start having uh, professional success that's correlated with financial success. And uh, I, I didn't like the job anymore. Mm. And, uh, but there was parts of the job that I loved, right? So it was, I wanted to desperate, desperately wanted to work with the same people and just talk about different things. We talked yeah. about you know, in, in commercial insurance, you're talking like, what keeps you up at night? What are you most afraid of? What could you afford not to have happen? And the content of your conversations weren't necessarily things that I, I was passionate about. Prudent, prudent talk about, wasn't passionate about it. And people called you on their worst days. I wanted them to call me on yeah. their best days and celebrate yeah. some of the successes of chasing down a dream, you know? Yeah. And um, so the vision when I left was, I'm going to help business owners with financial decisions. I'm going to help business owners manage their balance sheet, both organizationally and personally. And so that was the vision. And I stepped out on my own. And so in some ways, that was the best decision because it was a courageous decision at that, at that moment in time to walk away from the certainty of, of income. So it grew my courage. But, but candidly, it was also the worst decision because obviously it didn't work. And so I jumped out waiting for the parachute to come open and it, and it never did. And so and motivated by uh, all kinds of things, but being motivated by fear and feeling like you're running out of money and actually running out of money, uh, terrifying experience. So financially, not a good move in that respect. But and, I started me as, uh, as a financial advisor. Yeah, I mean, stepped out yeah. and I, I started a, a financial planning practice at that moment in time. And you know, when when you don't have any clients, you're <laughs> in your mid twenties and uh, you have no experience. Uh, not surprisingly, the marketplace wasn't eager to uh, to hire me. <laughs> Uh, but it was an unbelievably uh, humbling experience, which is probably what I needed in that moment in time. Mm. You know, you just marinate in your weaknesses all day. Mm -hmm. And I had never, I'd always grown up playing team sports, which allowed you to play to your strengths. And you're very successful at that. And so you're always being rewarded. Yeah. That, and yeah. even if you have a really niche contribution to the team, you're still contributing in a meaningful way. And then yeah. when you're out on your own, you just all of a sudden your weaknesses start occupying a, a tremendous amount of your time because you're not good at it, mm. you know, in your bootstrap mode. So you're trying to not hire or spend money on things that trying to preserve capital. So I think it was a, an unbelievably helpful experience. It wasn't fun. It's uh, it's like pruning, right? Yeah, Sometimes yeah. you have to harvest, cut off some of the grapes. So the grapes that are left on the vine are, are stronger. And so though it compromises the quantity of the crush, right? The quality goes up. And so mm -hmm. that, that was a trial by fire moment that I certainly didn't enjoy in real time, but it was priceless. Yeah. And fear is an interesting thing. People don't change until the pain of the change exceeds the pain, excuse me, the pain of their current circumstance exceeds the pain of change. There, I got it out. <laughs> but uh, things that might have created some fear for me, uh, I was able to tackle because I was trying to outrun something. Um, and it, it is what provoked this relationship with, with Delap in the first place. So, hmm. uh, uncon unconventional career path end up here at, at the firm, but all connected to a decision to, to pursue purpose over finances alone. And by purpose, it's kind of passion, like the alignment of, of need and passion and opportunity. So, uh, and ironically, I ended up doing what I always wanted to do. It just required a fair amount of, uh, headwind along the way. Do you think that the what you're doing today in serving clients is different than how it would have been had you been successful back in 2008 with your own practice? Infinitely hmm. more more successful because I'm surrounded by people that that have experiences and expertise that I wouldn't have had in that moment in time. Mm -hmm. uh, so it allows me to really live into the parts of the job where I can create the most value for the clients. 
moreover, this firm has worked hard for almost 90 years to, to build trust. And that's, that might be one of the, the most competitive moats that exists today in this world of infinite disruption yeah. is technology disrupts, but it's difficult to disrupt trust. And the world is complicated. <laughs> and so the opportunity to step into a client's life to create clarity and confidence around a financial decision, uh, certainly the, the, the content of the conversation might be commoditized at times in terms of what's the right number, but that opportunity to create clarity around, you know, what is their purpose and yeah. what is the purpose? How does that inform a calling? And, and ultimately then how does a calling inform a vision and then coming around them and building a plan? Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a privilege that, uh, it fires me up. I mean, that's the other challenge is uh, I've, I've come to love work in a way that I haven't historically. Uh, and so then in the midst of trying to manage all the other priorities uh, in life, you know, um, because when work stops feeling like work, uh, it's a little bit more challenging to keep it in the box. Right, right. You could do it all the time. Absolutely. Um, so I guess what are some of the businesses or business owners that you've met along the way that you think have been... Uh, impactful to uh who you are professionally and the the advice that you give wow i mean that would be a very long list probably every client i've i've dealt with i've learned something from um early in my career uh, i got the opportunity to work alongside my dad for about 10 years and and he brought me into uh you know kind of take over or step into his shoes and in trusted relationships with some of our long time clients i mean i'm working with clients today that have been clients for over 60 or 70 years. That's interesting. So, I mean, because that's so true of so many of our listeners where they're intergenerational businesses, yeah. what's it like to work for your father? What's it like to have your boss be the guy that you eat Thanksgiving with? Yeah. Well, I mean, he did that. He worked for his father. And so I think he was a little apprehensive about, you know, having me join the firm. Um, and that's why Jim White recruited me. And, and yeah. you know, it's great as long as it works out. If it doesn't work out, not, not a lot of fun getting rid of your son, you know. So why, why do you think it worked out? Because uh, the firm, a lot of the talents that I had were matched well with the firm. But in terms of working alongside my dad, we're, we're fairly different types of people and different strengths. And, um, so I learned from him, he learned from me and our firm was so different than where, uh, United Grocers was probably 25% of our revenue. And I would spend from September 30th through Christmas out in Milwaukee at, at their headquarters. And so, um, then you'd come in for taxis and, you know, and so, uh, you'd start all over again at a busy time. And so all that time I was out there with, uh, uh Jim Rache and my dad doing this auditing of United Grocers and just side by side with them in the same room. And so you just, you know, you'd learn a lot from them. So I learned a lot, uh, in the challenge of that complex audit, but um, I had several clients. I had one woman had a franchise, a, a longtime client of mine, and and she was really difficult to work for. I mean, she she would find it. If you made an error, she found it. And so she she made you become really good. You know, you really worked hard to serve her well and uh, you know, dare her to find her basically. And yeah. And uh well I'm gonna I'm gonna pause you there on that one because if I'm thinking of the right client are you helping mm -hmm. that that family set up college college accounts for grandchildren of Correct. of that yeah, same client? Yeah, she's, so she's, she's she's since passed away, mm -hmm. but now you're now you're providing financial literacy to her grandchildren and and then great grandchildren, yeah, setting up five five twenty nines for great grandchildren, yeah, uh, yeah. because she valued education, mm -hmm. valued financial literacy. I think that's interesting. So now you're you're providing financial leadership across four generations yeah, for the business personally, for the estate. I think that's, that's a unique relationship that you have with, with a family that you might not find in most places. Yeah, it's unique. And, and so it's, it, that's part of the, the joy is working with families like that. And, you know, some people would probably look at that and say, you're making rich people richer, but I, you know, most of these family businesses, they, they're providing so much employment in Oregon and they're providing opportunities and, 
And they're just stewarding the wealth. They're stewarding the business uh, for the next generation that hopefully will continue to keep it in uh, in the Northwest and provide opportunities for, for uh, employment and for families and keep our economy running well. And, um, you know, we're brought into re- relationships. I've learned so much just by being given that opportunity to become creative with a family and this is how we're going to figure out your succession plan and your estate plan and yes we're trying to save taxes but we're yeah. also trying to make sure that the business survives yeah so a couple of thoughts there uh you'll sometimes say not all decisions are financial decisions uh probably heard you say that maybe <laughs> 72 times yeah just like you've heard my quips yeah <laughs> uh, not all decisions are financial decisions so unpack that what does that mean? I have one longtime client. I uh, was just working there this week and uh, very significant real estate net worth. And um, I talked about, to him about the investments of his uh, liquid assets. And he says, Dave, and he's very, very serious about this, Dave, if I made another dollar, it would not change my life. And so for him, he's more concerned with security of those dollars and making some income in it, but he doesn't have to make a killing by you know, uh, being involved in the equity market. So he tends to be involved in the fixed income markets. But um, he's, uh, you know, he's a very hard worker, has been a very hard worker his whole life. He also, uh, he was a home builder for a number of years, but then at a point in time, he realized that that was not good for his health and he wouldn't be around, you know, for as long as he has, if he continued doing what he was doing. So he just said, okay, stop. I, I have some rental properties here. And he just wound down the the, uh, the one business and started up the other. And now he's a property manager, basically. And and he, he still goes in the office and loves his work. Um, I learned a lot from him over the years as well. The, the, the role that we play in a family's life and the close proximity we are to their to their balance sheet, you know, we're trying to provide after-tax balance sheet decisions that align with with values and mm-hmm. and so in that experience we get to walk out the the arc the lifespan of one's wealth journey uh from starting with a client when it's an idea and no revenue to mm-hmm. growing it and finally getting some traction and then the optimization the eventual sale yeah, sale yeah and so, you know, four decades in here, you've you've had a few people you've walked this out, including to the point where now we're we've, we're processing their estate. Yeah. And so, I guess, as you look at the wealth journey that people are on, and and the ways that people approach that wealth journey, how has it influenced the way that you advise wealth, and more importantly, experience wealth personally? Hmm. Well, um, I've always been one to try and you know, find the, the opportunities in the tax code. And, and fortunately, our tax code still provides a lot of opportunity for generosity. And so as one gives, um, you know, you get to have a tax deduction for that. So we're saving some taxes. And whether that's giving during lifetime or giving in their estate, uh, there are different techniques uh, that I'll talk to people about, giving appreciated securities to donor advised fund. People have heard, you've heard me say that in numerous times, yeah. Um, changing the way their estate plan, their bequests are, and giving their uh, qualified plan, the, the IRA or 401k to charity, uh, because that's going to be income tax to their heirs rather than if it goes to the charity. You know, I'm not trying to tell people what to do with their money. I'm trying to give them our ideas of different ways to structure their estate plan and their present financial plan, just so they, they fully understand areas where there are, it's not loopholes, there are approaches that can be, can put more dollars into their heirs' hands and can put more dollars into uh, areas that they feel passionate about, uh, uh, you know, areas that uh, are going to be charitable. Yeah, you you don't run into too many clients that are passionate about paying taxes. No. (laughs) Usually, usually we can agree on that one. The common Um, ground. Well, so then not letting you off the hook then. So as you think about your own life, obviously you have the opportunity to see people in various phases of life and in all scales of wealth. Most people around the world would say that you're wealthy. Have you ever stopped to think what's the purpose of wealth? I guess at this moment in time, how would you define the purpose of wealth for you and Carla? Well, uh, many of the decisions we've made over the years have not been only financial decisions. Um, in the, our decision to uh, be obedient and, and adopt these children was not a good financial move, but uh, you know, 
I, I'd never Pretty awesome. It. Oh, it's been awesome. It's just been awesome. And, and so, you know, Carl and I have always been, you know, generous in, in supporting various organizations, whether it's our church or not-for-profits around the world. And, and our passion has tended to be uh, f- foreign countries with education and children. And so we support organization in Morelia, Mexico for a number of years, have had six different exchange students come live with us for yeah. a month from that organization. And then uh, more recently supporting the, the orphanage in Guatemala. And now that's becoming supporting education there as well. And when you travel internationally and you realize that you meet somebody that's working for those organizations and maybe they're in leadership and they're making $400 a month or something like that, you have to really think twice then when you go out to dinner on a weekend and you realize you just spent a week's worth of their earnings or so. So my opinion or understanding of wealth changes over the years, the older you get, obviously, and we try and be good stewards of what yeah. we have. And It's pretty sweet when you can sit there and help people put together plans where you realize that the majority of the giving is potentially coming from taxes that they would otherwise pay. Yeah. So yeah. It, you can get close to cash flow neutral with some proactive planning and that's always one of my favorite parts of the year is towards the end of the year when you see the surge of giving and you see how the through cross-disciplinary execution of wealth and in tax strategy and the winner is the client winner is causes they care about the loser is the government that's a fun fun moment in our annual calendar of events yeah it's, it's one of the weeks i enjoy most uh, that's why i don't usually take a ton of time off around christmas because i know we're going to get those last minute calls yeah okay so as we kind of put a bow on our conversation which i've enjoyed thank you you're welcome my question is a bit open-ended over the next five years if you're successful what happens i'd like to finish strong with my career here at the firm i like to continue to grow and challenge myself and to be able to finish strong with the clients that I work with. It's interesting. You end up working on a plan and say, whoa, somebody else will be executing this, you know, yeah. because I hope the, you know, the client lasts for a number of years and before they're dealing with their estate, I like to finish very strong as a, as a parent and husband and uh, uh, ensure that, uh, you know, we're able to launch another batch, uh, you know, out of the nest here and yeah. uh, maybe the next, I don't know, over the next five to 10 years. I hope that the Lord will be proud of what I do over the next five to 10 years. Absolutely. And maybe we just make this thing so awesome that you don't want to leave. <laughs> work, work's, not, work's not working, right? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Awesome, Dave. Well, thanks for our time. And, You're welcome. Uh, really enjoyed our conversation. Pleasure.